A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. Yourself, Sestina. What would you ask the artist? By Terence Hayes. Dear painter, can you share how you made the blue we find in certain of your paintings? Sometimes I catch it throwing a goddish glow over everything in the eye of a storm covered in lightning. I fear without you, the color will not be seen again, except perhaps inside us, where the bones hold its mercurial shades in them. Matisse, sir. Did your brushes have the blues in them? Where else might the remains be found? We sometimes find the color in denim when rain dampens it. Once or twice making love, when I closed my eyes, I found myself in a tabernacle of the hue you have left hanging on the walls around us. Hello, goat, master of the show. I have very little use for blueberries, blue jays, skies, sapphire, and the hymns in the garments of policemen. But the lines we see hand-painted on porcelain come close. I might use it on a mean boss or in cases of chaos or rapture, and if I fell into darkness, I would gaze upon it and thank you. Midfall, Icarus shows how a misstep expands behind you, how one can come to a conclusion using the wrong calculus. The man who covered his coins and honey before eating them in gooseberries also turned a distasteful blue. The ennui we wish to cover and uncover, free and contain, as in how hard it is to describe your own accent, as in the way the bluest eye has so much blackness in it. If people born in a season of ice are usually crawling by summer, how much do you suppose that determines their general disposition? Above us, are constellations of soul needs for guidance, the anthems of sawdust and approximation, as if in matters of our bodies we are our least reliable witnesses. You find upon exit the tubes of desuetude painters use in the exhibit. I was born for this moment because this is the moment I was born, you say. It is always the color of history. Can you share how you made the blues outlast and outline us? How long did you swim or drown or float or swallow them, esteemed ghost? Henri, if I may. Henri, Henri, Henri. Envoy of Picasso's Blue. The first drawing Pablo Picasso made as a toddler with a single blue crayon on onion skin made his father, an average painter, weep and weep again, showing the drawing to Picasso's mother who also wept. The drawing was said to have been lost after the death of Picasso's sister, Conchita of diphtheria, when the family moved to Barcelona, but it reappeared years later somewhere you'd never expect. To truly grasp any of Picasso's later work, you should know whether the sister's death conjured a bird's or bull's eye view of loss and faith, and if the experience instilled a constant, mysterious feeling in him. 
whether everything that happens to the artist before age nine or 10, or even before nine or 10 a.m. influences whether an instrument is held like a tool or weapon. Loss, like desire, is always in the eye of the maker and beholder. Picasso, of course, grew to make many more haunted, perceptive scenes. But the stranger who found the drawing had no idea who'd made it, only that the lines in blue crayon on onion paper conjured a mysterious feeling in him. It looked somehow like a perfectly drawn landscape, said the neighbor, resting his wiry hand on the garden fence, thinking the stranger showing him a drawing in the middle of the day, slightly stranger than he thought before. Returning to his dirt when the stranger left, the neighbor felt something come over his eyes, a quixotic quaking in all his blind spots. He spent the rest of his days trying to describe. There was a depiction of the body's geometries, the eye doctor replied, when the stranger asked his opinion. He sent the stranger home after an inconclusive eye exam and then went home to bed himself. The doctor closed his eyes around his tears and slept for six or seven days, dreaming of nudes posing before a surgeon with the palette knife. When the stranger got home and showed the drawing to his wife, she said it was clearly a portrayal of liberty. The artist marking the presence of God, she explained, pausing over the thickest of the lines and asking why and which heartbreaks can conjure the opposite of faith and time. Her hair, the stranger noticed, was no longer as it was when she was his bride. Blind spots always leave a stain, the wife said after dinner, though the stranger had long put the drawing away. She kept trying to describe what she'd seen, how not to disappear completely, she said, lying in bed while her husband, the stranger, saw the drawing burning in a nightmare. It was clearly a tale about slaves. The artist was suffering a notion of color. The wife cried herself to sleep that night and dreamed she was being covered in waves of salt water and gold, the ephemera of souls lost between African and American shores, a blue between the sky and shark parlor lovely as the loveliest of the sisters to leap into the waters and live free as the bride of the sea. Terence, where did this poem come from? Well, I believe um, some years ago I was in France and I was at the Cinema Pompidou, uh, Centre Pompidou. I can't remember what that modern museum of contemporary art is. And there's a Pompidou, yeah, yeah. Pompidou. There's an amazing Matisse there. And it's actually not the one I'm thinking of in this poem. The, the poem, the painting that I'm thinking of is, is uh, Collage Icarus. Mm-hmm. And so, but that piece that I initially saw in the museum, it was just such a striking blue that I just continued to follow that color through all of Matisse's work and inevitably wanted to write this poem about that particular color of blue, which, you know, cycles throughout what's happening in the poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after having written that poem uh, in the form of a sestina, I began to meditate on uh, Picasso's blue because of the relationship between Picasso and uh 
and Matisse, in both in uh-huh. my own sort of interest in art, but also you know, in art history. So yeah. I thought it only fair to kind of also meditate on that part of it, but in a different sort of way, a looser, uh, less formal way, uh, which is, again, something about my understanding of the two artists. And what is Matisse? And I mean, I know you've written it in the poem, but I mean, what? why did you home in on that blue, do you think? Well, you know, it was very much a, just a uh, emotional, aesthetic response, which is why I say the piece or the color that initially triggers the poem isn't actually in the poem. Uh, mm-hmm. The poem actually makes a direct reference to the to the Icarus piece uh, yeah. cut out. And that kind of blue, which I believe uh, Matisse maybe even trademark. I think you might even better find that. Particular oh, really? Under his, like the Coca-Cola under, red. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um but it was just such a striking color, you know, I, I wanted to just think about it. And so part of it was a kind of a study in the color blue. And so, you know, the sky, the dusk, denim, sapphire, rain, it becomes a meditation on blue, but it does start with where he got that blue from. Like, where did he see such a color? So it's a, you know, it's, uh, how about this? That Even the title of the poem sort of goes right to um, what would you ask the artist? Which, you know, sometimes I look at that title and think I probably should have called it something else. Like, you know, just studies in blue, two studies in blue. Um, but that really is the impulse for the poem is, where did you get this blue from? You know, Matisse. I mean, hmm. that's, that's where it comes out of. So it almost like the, the poetic form gave you the opportunity to have that conversation or to start that conversation with Matisse. Yes, the poetic form, because of its sort of, I think of it almost as a kind of prismatic form with these rules of six. So it just meant that I was going to also meditate on at least six shades of blue um, as I thought about it, rather than sort of thinking by the, about the primary stimulus. I was very much interested in letting the poem take this notion somewhere else and, and uh, the shape of the Sestina, um, the obsessiveness of the Sestina formed, allowed me to do something like that. And, um, okay, so firstly, for for folks who don't know, could you just enlighten us about what a sestina is? And then also, I'm curious about, did you know from the beginning that this was going to be a sestina? Yes, I did. Uh, in this book, there are actually three of them. Uh, there are mm-hmm. two that are meditating on paintings. One is on this South Carolinian painter, uh, William H. Johnson, uh, the other is actually on Octavia Butler, and it's almost all visual. Uh, yes. It's a fully yes. visual that, system. That's extraordinary, that one. <laughs> and then this one, I mean, uh, you know, we can talk about the actual historical form, which goes back to the troubadours, I believe it's French. Um, or we might talk about it just sort of the obsessive architecture of the form, which is six lines, six stanzas, six words repeating. And then after you've done that uh, six times, which is 36 lines yeah you will have a three-line ending which is almost like a kind of concluding envoy is what it's typically called and that would be just a the kind of you have to use all of the six words that have been kind of cycling through the poem in that concluding stanza is that clear Do you follow what i'm saying should i tease that out a bit more i think well it's clear for me because i know what it is i think it's a big towering obsessive repetitive form that's daunting because you have to figure out the way for those that don't know what we're talking about here because of the way you have to kind of incorporate these six words into it so i think it does require a little bit of ingenuity on the kind of basic premise for me i wanted to kind of up the ante and just sort of bend the form so there's several words or several notions that are repeating Mm -hmm. six times throughout the poem so i say uh sir master painter ghost matisse henri and of course, as I said, this sort of notion of blue. So 
there's actual, you know, if you're hearing the poem, I'm talking about blueberries and blue jays and the hymn and the garments of policemen and mm-hmm. denim and rain. So I'm deliberately using six different shades of blue oh. cycling through the poem. <clears throat> and, and finally, this will sound really like a, a total nerd comment for people who don't, <laughs> who wonder where poems come from. Uh, I also wanted to repeat six pronouns in it. So the pronouns are I, <laughs> us, we, it, them, and you. And a pronoun like I, I will say to everyone, this gets down to like the, the traditionalist versus the sort of experimentalist inside a form. Mm-hmm. For that I, the pronoun I, I sometimes will do E-Y-E, E-Y-E yeah. as a kind of visual I. So I'm, I'm massaging all of the rules to kind of see where it will take me as I'm meditating on this color. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty dense and complicated form. I, I, I wanted to both make it overwrought so that I could loosen it up, if that makes any sense. I wanted to kind of just make the obsessiveness somewhat ridiculous even. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I, I really love the way you've captured the spirit of the form because it's it's not just about the rules, is it? it, it it's mm-hmm. the fact that you've got... So in the traditional version, which is a bit easier, I think, than what you have done, mm-hmm. you've got these six words. They end each line. There's no escape. Right from those six words they're always coming back so it can be very claustrophobic very obsessive as you say mm-hmm. also i love the word you used earlier meditative you know i hadn't really mm-hmm. thought about it in that sense it could be a contemplative sure. um which which is kind of less fraught and anxious i think than than a lot of sestinas mm-hmm. and i think i probably think of it that way how about this for information you know i started writing the sestinas in the april of the quarantine April 2020, right. because I was supposed to do an event uh, at the, um, it wasn't the Smithsonian, but it was a museum in D.C., Phillips Collection, a fairly well-known museum in D.C. They have a pretty good art collection. Mm-hmm. And quarantine made, meant that I couldn't be there physically. Right. So that even before I had shown up, I was very much thinking about the Sestina form in the quarantine and in museum as a place for meditation, as you say, certainly as a way like of not being able to kind of get around the art. And I was trying to underscore that uh, obsessive looking part of of the artistic process. So when things didn't happen, you know, I did try to construct a, an additional form <laughs> so that people could write it themselves, which is why the poem is called the you know, Do It Yourself Sestina, because I had orchestrated a way where maybe we could even write them together in the space and then the quarantine happened. So I never did the reading, but the people who would have been there still had access to the poems. And I imagine somewhere out there, they might've tried to write their own sustainers <laughs> around art. Right. I want to come back to the DIY aspect of it in a moment. But one thing I really mm-hmm. want to just underscore here is, you know, if you're listening to this and you're new to Sestinas and your mind is feeling a bit blown, <laughs> uh-huh. that's normal yeah. because, you know, the mm-hmm. Sestina itself is hard enough. It's claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. It's constricting enough. But what Terence has done is made it even more challenging by adding, and if you go to the show notes on the website, you will see there's a graphic. It's like a chart he's got of the the six N-words, but he's also got another three sets of six words that appear in the poem. And so he's he, he's adding constriction on constriction. You know, so there's that aspect of it, but it's also really interesting to hear that you were writing it at a constricted time, claustrophobic mm-hmm, time mm-hmm. when people were in quarantine and lockdown. Yeah, and so the form maybe, again, is sort of how I think of most form. I think of the sonnet this way too, is that it's a box that holds a lot of the chaos. You need a box in a time of sort of 
things seem a bit unsettled, you know, or claustrophobic. So I do think form for me, I mean, it is a question sometimes over here in the States, people will say, uh, you're a formalist. Some people will say you're a confessional poet. And I think people can hear in the terms, even if you're not familiar with those terms, you hear what they are. You're a kind of personal confessional poet. You're a strict yeah. formal poet. Uh, you're a black yeah. arts poet. I hear all of these things. And I say, yeah. in each case, the poem decides what I am, you know, the, the occasion decides what I am. So in that example, of course, I'm suggesting certainly I needed the obsessiveness, the the kind of going back to the Sistina form because I had nowhere else to go. <laughs> so you wanted something to obsess over a bit. And it yeah. is true that obsession is a kind of meditation. And I love that phrase for form as a box that holds the chaos. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I came across your work first through the American sonnets for my past and future assassin you know which is a all sonnets and it was all written during the time of the the trump administration mm -hmm. so there was as i understand it quite a lot of chaos in, to be placed in that particular box sure. and of course they show up in the most recent book because mm -hmm. that that chaos and that energy for the, for the particular american sonnet that energy is not gone you know i don't think i'll ever write a whole book of american sonnets again but you know some yeah. days it feels like all i can do is put all of the madness into a form of love, which is what I think that American sonnet does for me in the sonnet mm -hmm. form and as principle, it's, it feels like a very good place to go in yeah. an over or overwrought political climate because it's the opposite of that. And again, just stay with the question of form in general. I'm really curious about your relationship to it because, you know, there is a trend, which I'm sure you, you're familiar with on your side of the pond as, as much as ours, to say that, you know, these traditional forms, they're associated with patriarchy, with imperialism, colonialism, and so on, we should be leaving that behind. We should be breaking free of all of that. Mm. But that's not the approach that you take. So no, I'm curious I, about your stance. I, I think so much of my philosophy is rooted in the principle of a metaphor, which is always about bridging and never about canceling. You know, if you mm -hmm. cut off half a metaphor, you, you don't have anything there. You know, so oh. I'm often thinking about bridging notions. So hence, I, I mean, we can talk about it in American Sonnet, which is, attaching that adjective American to it to allow yeah. myself to bend the rules yeah. inside of it and having that principle be mm -hmm. the adjective makes the form. You know, the adjective makes it an American sonnet, not just a, the traditional sonnet. So that modifier, if you think about that in most general principle of things, is a very interesting thing to me. Even as Black, you know, the modifier on my experience as a Black person is super interesting, but I will still say to you, it is still the modifier. I'm still mm -hmm. mostly interested in, you know, uh, the body, the individual, the, the perspective of one, as opposed to kind of what, and what, you know, the generalizing effects of modifiers. But I do like to play with just that principle inside a form. Like, what can I get away with here? So here in the Sestina form, not only obviously multiplying the six words that are repeated, but especially what happens for me in the envoy, which is taking those three lines and turning them into tercets or multiple three-line envoys, yeah. which is to say that the ending, which is a fairly acrobatic part of the of the Sestina, you know, you go through these six words and now you got to use them all six times in the final yeah. uh, tercet. There was no way I was going to be able to do that with, with having about 18, I don't know how many words <laughs> I had here to use. And, I see, and it's, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. You know, instead, I just was sort of thinking about what was I thinking about when I was writing it? Mm -hmm. And let the envoy almost be an extension of the parallel thinking that sometimes happen happens when you're writing. If that makes any sense. You know, you're thinking about one thing, and that's what the poem is about. But there's mm -hmm. these other ideas every time you look up from the page. 
So for me, in this particular form, which is to say all of them have a kind of extended envoy principle, I'm sort of suggesting that really the form should open you up. You should be inside that form. And then at the end of it, it should open you. And that freedom is what I'm trying to capture there with the, with the Picasso extension. Right. And so again, just for, for people who've just heard it once and are relatively new to the form, all the stuff about Matisse that you read, that is within the classical Sistina form. And then the the envoy, instead of being the th- three lines where all six words appear, again, uh, once heard Seamus Heaney describe that as a, a lap of honor for the little sure. six words, yeah. um, you've kind of exploded the envoy and it goes pretty well as long or even longer than the original poem with, mm-hmm. you know, this amazing story about Picasso's first painting. I mean, at what point did you just decide, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to push past the usual boundary of the form. Well, it it really does come out of, I wouldn't have been able to do it without thinking first about Matisse. Or, or rather, I should say, I shouldn't assume that everybody thinks about this sort of dynamic between Matisse and Picasso, which, you know, anybody that's studied a little bit of art history, which I, I majored in art in college mm-hmm. and, you know, I've done right. the paintings of or the covers of my book. So I do live very closely to certain kinds of things in, in art. So for me, you know, people will say maybe Matisse is the classical, the most classical with his cutouts and his sort of formality, maybe even his Frenchness of the last yeah. century of artists. And then some others would say the opposite end of that would be Picasso, more, mm-hmm. you know, romantic, more naturalistic and animalistic. So I kind of live between those two spaces. You know, it just depends on the day. I do like a shapely, straightforward, simplistic notion. You know, so Patisse gives us all sorts of things about modernism. He gives us, you know, we don't get Apple without Matisse's relationship to shape and color, you know, the kind of principles. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and then Picasso, of course, is just wild and a little unruly and, and intuitive. And so I, I do think of those as my sort of spectrums. Um, you probably could do that in music, you know, uh, the wild musician and in the opposite pole. Mm-hmm. So I do think um, they serve for me as examples of just moving between the side of the intuitive and the formal, the classical and the romantic, uh, just on a working principle. But so certainly as I was working on Matisse, I was naturally going to come to thoughts about Picasso because it just sort of happens that way in my mind. And you've used the word meditate several times to describe the Sestina. And then you go into a narrative in the, in the envoy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a completely mm-hmm. different mode of writing, isn't it? Yeah. And again, uh, we could talk about that as well, this notion of the lyric, mm-hmm. uh, the song impulse inside of poems and then the storytelling impulse yeah. inside of. And again, I think I've walked between those two spaces. I am very much interested in lyric and in, in saying the same thing again and again and the circularity of feeling. But I'm also very interested in the narrative, the beginning, the middle and ending, the kind of resolution of, of things. But again, if you hear what I'm saying to you, I do like to think of my toolbox as just full of every possible thing. And I'm more adding instruments to it all the time and experimenting with instruments rather than settling on one sort of toolbox, whether it's the toolbox of being a formalist or the toolbox of being mm-hmm. a narrative poet or the toolbox of, you know. So I do, um, as much as I can say, let the impulse inside of the poem and the writing determine that. And ironically, I do think that those DIY sestinas, the do-it-yourself sestinas, are probably the best example of that principle of letting the poem tell you what it wants to be and how it wants to be. Even inside of the principle of a kind of rigorous form, you can still find um, a way out of that form if you're sort of listening to yourself, if you're sort of observing 
what the writing has already sort of done, the mathematical part of the Sistina with those words that I think you can sort of think about it as you're writing and you're trying, can I write about what I was thinking about as I was writing? <laughs> those are some <laughs> of the principles underway. Yeah. And I mean, I think in a way this is a microcosm of the book because there is a huge variety of styles and subjects mm -hmm. and forms, even illustrations, you know, mm -hmm. throughout mm -hmm. the book. Um, can I t ask a bit about the DIY aspect of this? Because it's it's another modifier, isn't it? You've got American Sonic, yeah. DIY Sestina. So that, that right. shouldn't set us up to know this isn't necessarily going to be the Sestina as we know it. Yeah. Where did that whole concept come from? Well, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a professor at New York University here. And these days, I am mostly interested, even when I'm going out giving readings and just sort of talking to people about writing for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um so not so much presenting the book as a thing to be consumed, but maybe as a manual for writing right. as you would like. Mm -hmm. And so even with the, I think, again, the DIY Sestinas are expl extremely explicit with that because I'm actually laying out a graph that if you use it, you could write your own Sestina. You know, I've set it up in such a way that if you were just to read through the lines, you would be beginning to get the sentences for your own Sestina. So I'm, I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek with that. Uh, the book ends actually with a couple of... Uh, you know, again, pro propositions for Sestina. So they're just only the graphs at the very back of the book. Yeah. And you literally could write it. But I don't include the envoy because, again, you won't really know what the envoy will be until you've written the Sestina. Yeah. Um, but I, I am mostly encouraging, uh, you know, again, people to figure it out for themselves. I mean, I could give you a sort of an anecdote of something that's coming up where, you know, I was invited to read at the Guggenheim Museum here. And I really was curious if I could do a workshop with the security guards and the, the staff, people at the museum, they still want me to read. So I guess I will. But first <laughs> I will go in and we will do like maybe during one of their lunch breaks, I'm just going to have them do some writing about like, what does it mean? You know, you work in a museum, you're around all this art, wouldn't you have mm -hmm. like some pointers or some ideas about maybe taking notes or just thinking about it. And who knows if you work at the museum for 15 years, you might have a couple of books in you. So that is what I'm interested in. The notion that I could have people sort of in every kind of aspect of life, think about the, you know, recording, um, the keeping track of your day-to-day -day experiences and how it's not essays, which is mostly how people come yeah. to language, you know, in, in yeah. school. It's not an essay. It's not a sonnet necessarily, even though that could be useful. But just this idea that what I'm doing could be done for others, you know, others can do what I do, which is just the practice of writing. That's all, maintain a practice of writing. And this is a, I mean, it's it's a wonderful kind of invitation. I mean, you could, we could all look at, take that same grid and write another Sestina, couldn't we? Mm -hmm. That's and right. It would That's be, right. it would be yeah. another version of after Terence Hayes. Right. And again, I would, I would hope that inside of that, people would start doing what they see me doing in the poem, which is again taking liberties on what certain words are doing or mm -hmm. where they should be. Even you know, if I was to talk about the, that poem. Um, if, if the audience can hear each one, each word I say will be followed by, you know, it's a six line stanza. So there's the dear painter stanza, six lines, yeah. me, it, I, you, and then there's Matisse stanza, hello goat. And then there's midfall Icarus. So as soon as I get to the Icarus thing, I, I let go. So I don't really do esteemed or goddess or if I uh -huh. may, or they're coming in different places. So what I would hope that as someone started to set out and write their own poem, they would be like, well, he's already breaking rules so that, yeah. So you maybe wouldn't wind up in the same place, but that again would be what I would hope would happen. And so, you know, I think a form is a, it's a gateway. It's a doorway. It's not really a box. Yes. It's a kind of a frame that you go through into maybe a room, but certainly not a, a box, not a cage. You know, I, I think about the, the open spaces inside of that form that allow us to 
to make discoveries. And that is how it's extended. To go back to your previous question about, you know, the sort of history of form and this idea of its usefulness, it is a thing to go through. I mean, mm-hmm. form is a thing that we live with. So I say to my students, uh, if the speed limit here, I don't know this how to convert to kilometers. If the speed limit is if it's Actually, 75, no, we use miles. We use miles. Okay. Here in okay. The UK. Right. Good. So it may be clear. If if you're yeah. going 70 miles, if the law it says 70 miles per hour, maybe you could do nine miles, you know, maybe you could do uh 88. You follow what I mean? So I talked to them about bending the rule, mm-hmm. not fully breaking it. Because if you break it, you maybe don't recognize it. Yeah. But you do want to be able to recognize it. But the bending of form and bending of rules and bending of laws, everything, that is where we get evolution. That's where we get synthesis. That's where we really get growth and pressure. So I'm always encouraging people not to obey the rules, but to figure out how to, you know, massage them. I mean, it's almost just like you're giving us a poem in kit form here. It's like something to play mm-hmm. with. You know, I love the, the the idea of form as a gateway that you go through and sure. it's expansive. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how I experience it when I write in traditional forms. It's not, if it were just constrictive, I wouldn't want to do it. It's like, right. but they give you, here are some pieces to play with. And then when you get into the game, then the spirit of the game takes over. Yeah, we just don't get that kind of opportunity early opportunity early on with explication and scansion and yeah. even maybe history, you know. I and when I was in high school, between Langston Hughes, T. S. Eliot, and Shakespeare, all the things that we get in high school, and mm-hmm. Huckleberry Finn. I did like Huckleberry Finn, yeah. but I like Shakespeare. It would be Shakespeare, Twain, mm-hmm. Hughes, and then Eliot in terms of what I remember from that experience. And so I do know that form does do something for language. I mean, I think I must have known that in the tenth grade. So I do think of poetry as essentially form. It's figurative language. Yes. Figurative is yeah. form. And so to kind of separate it, even the notion of free verse, I do think like a paragraph is not a poem. You know what I mean? A prose poem. But the notion of free verse, even that notion of freedom is a little bit misleading. And maybe it's emotional freedom. And the verse is still form. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's still a question of modifier. You know, yeah, free yeah. is modifying form. And so form is still you know, the, the the primary concern of what we can do inside of this shape. Amen. So, and, and I'm curious, why why leave the DIY aspect out there in the book? Because, you know, uh-huh. I, I love the idea of the chart, the table as a, as a springboard for writing the poem, but a lot of poets right. would have hidden that. They would have kept right. it for the workshop. They would have just started with what they would have printed in the book would be just the, the finished result. Why did you include it? Well, again, the book ends with, uh, it's a little bit of a discussion on the form at the very back of the book. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, I think of this, these as two poems. It says, two do-it-yourself Sestina starters. One is DIY Sestina for Emmett Till. And then the second one is DIY Sestina for Ghost Watching Yourself. Mm-hmm. And so again, what I think I'm doing is setting up almost kind of like grid poems so that if you were to go through it, if I just read the first sort of revolving lines, what kind of fear arms a white man, which could also be what kind of love arms a white man, uh, how much love arms a black man, how much love arms a black woman. So if you were to look at this poem, I'm, the, the columns are telling you what I'm sort of asking you to contemplate on. So one column, mm-hmm. man, woman, child, animal, mouth, ghost. Another column is a white, a black, a hidden, a stripped, a whistling, a silent, Another column is fear, love, hunger, grief, blindness, courage. So you can kind of see, even by hearing the words that I would be throwing at you as a kind of scrabble, you know, here are your tiles. You can kind of see the general movement that you would be going into. Remembering, as I said, that like what's most interesting to me about the form and form is that it leads you to something else. 
Yeah. But you can see where I would be asking you to sort of move. But again, I, it's almost conceptual there at the end. Do I really expect people to write those poems? Maybe not, but I think they could imagine yeah. just by the title, DIY Sustainer for Emmett Till, DIY Sustainer for the Ghost Watching Yourself. You can kind of imagine conceptually the poems that follow. And that also is a kind of do-it-yourself encounter, if you follow me. So yeah, I do think, um, even though, you know, when I'm reading the poems, as in this experience, I don't dwell on that. I never talk about the complexities of that graph or the Sistina mm-hmm. form up front. I usually will say, here's a poem, this is Matisse, yeah. and then this is Picasso, uh, because I do think it's secondary, and I do think it is showing intentionally what you asked, the kind of scaffolding that uh, writers use, that we're not always just pulling things out of nowhere. And in fact, that scaffolding is uh, what we rely on to kind of get outside of ourselves. And so I'm intentionally showing that kind of notion um, and again, implying that it's something within all of our grasp, even if you're not using the yeah. words that I'm suggesting you use, you can see something about the kind of yeah. play involved with what we do. Yeah, I guess it's adding another level of self-consciousness to what is already a very self-conscious form, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do, I've always liked uh, bending the rules, those, those six words are called tell you times. You know, I've mm-hmm. always liked playing around with, uh, as I said, the I, yeah. Uh, being also an I, thinking that's where I could get my real mileage. Uh, mm-hmm. I think in that poem, you, I sometimes say is use. So I'm, yeah. I'm you know, yes. really yes. been in the rules. Uh, yeah, that's or even, you know what, we, you heard yeah. this, I said, uh, on we is for oh, my pronoun, we. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, calculus is us. So us is one of the pronouns. So instead of saying us at some point, I say calculus. So people will maybe yeah. hear these words, but you know, I do not want to focus on that in an initial reading. I do, I'm not yeah. interested necessarily in a live reading of having people here where the six words are repeating so much is having a kind of a cumulative effect of yeah. meditation on blue. Yeah. So it's nice to kind of think about it secondarily, but yeah, I'm mostly looking at those. Uh, the most exciting thing is that I got to calculus, not that I was staying with us. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I had to yeah. bend the rule because that calculus gives me an entirely new sentence that, you know, it, uh, a misstep is the wrong calculus, whatever that line is, it fully comes out of the form, not out of sort of just, thin air, you know, even though I, I, I prize that line, the gooseberries line, I wasn't thinking I was going to be talking about Chekhov yeah. uh, and a distasteful blue. But again, the combination of form and mm-hmm. meditation on the color allows for the surprise that I think we're often chasing um, in our work. And maybe we could just finish up by looking at the envoy a bit more mm-hmm. and where you mm-hmm. end up, because it's really quite extraordinary. You start off with the facts, what I assume are the facts about the Picasso's mm-hmm. first story, and then it it seems to build and build and build into more fantastical and dreamlike, but also meaningful territory. Could you talk about that, maybe? I, I really think that that, I mean, you know, with my writing process, I do revise a lot. I do mm-hmm. go back over things. But in each case with these envoys, I really was just trying to remember things that had occurred to me over the meticulous crafting of the Sistina part. Uh-huh. So there's a, there's a degree of math and Rubik's Cube and Scrabble that goes into kind of putting <laughs> Sestina together as I had arranged it. Yeah. But through all of that, I just kind of kept coming back to this dynamic of, you know, what would it be like to have been the father of Picasso? Yeah. And, you know, and this is true, you know, his dad was a painter. So yeah. it is, it's all, you know, it's a father-son question. It's a question yeah. of like, you know, um, you know, influence. So what would it be like, you know, to have gotten that very first drawing from your son? We all think, you know, we all think that the the kids' first drawings are amazing, but it's Picasso's. Yeah. So on that <laughs> principle, it, you know, it was a very simple principle, which is what if you were Picasso's dad, you yeah. were a painter, 
and you saw that your son was like, oh my God, my son's Picasso. You feel some kind of way about that. So it starts there, but it also becomes somewhere. And I mean, again, it's really evolving in the poem in real time. As I said, like, can Mm -hmm. I make a poem be about what I was thinking about as I was writing the other poem? Mm -hmm. So there really isn't any real planning other than trying to remember the things that occurred and then letting the poem move, if that makes any sense. So the, after that premise, it really does become, well, what happened to that drawing? Like if, you know, we do keep our kids' drawings, I wonder where that thing is. And so if you hear the poem really literally figuring those things out. Here's something I'll say to you about like the particular craft of that poem, something mm-hmm. that I, I did decide, or, you know, maybe in a, a, a draft or two later, was to not really say who these people were. So I was interested in sort of allegorical dimension. So I don't really say you know, the name of the dude or where they are. He's mm-hmm. just a stranger. Yeah. And it ultimately becomes the wife's story too. And mm-hmm. only towards the end does the wife say something that sort of suggests something about like race. She's like, it was about slaves. We still don't know who these people are though. We don't know if it's yeah. like a, a, you know, a white couple in the twenties or yeah. the neighbors down the street or, you know, whoever they are, if they're actually black people, is this a black man who found mm-hmm. the painting and is showing it to the dentist and everybody else. So I deliberately was very interested in sort of letting blue be the yeah. primary color, yeah. not really like white people and black people or these people and that people, um, but also interested in that, obviously, the notion of the middle passage and that ultimate question of water at yeah. the end uh, and the you know the blue and the devil shark parlor. But that was a conscious decision to kind of get the allegorical feel into the poem and then to let people decide. Like I do think sometimes, you know, as the maker of a poem, well, whatever you see them as, whatever you th- think the stranger looks like. Whether you even think the stranger's a villain or not, you know, as he sees the drawing burning in a nightmare, you know, he has a much more material relationship to it. He thinks it must be it's amazing. What is this piece? It's, I mean, it is amazing. It's Picasso's first drawing. So, but he doesn't know that. He just knows there's something magical about it. And he's trying to figure out, think about this in the process of poems or in a relationship to art. He wants somebody to kind of say, oh yeah, it looks like a landscape. So he's searching for these, someone that'll explain it to it. And his wife is like, it's, you know, it's something about God. It's something about grief. It's not anything that you can really nail down. And then letting her sort of carry the story out. That all comes out of the impulse of writing in a way that's not typical for me. You know, I typically Mm -hmm. do, as I said, I like to get to 10 drafts or something of a poem before I know, you know, where I'm going. And I just wanted to allow for that freedom because I had been so rigorous with the Matisse part. Yeah. I mean, I love the way it builds from one perspective to another. So you've got Picasso and then his father and his mother and his sister, and then the stranger who found the drawing, the neighbor, the eye doctor, and his wife. And then it's his wife's dream by the end. Mm-hmm. So it's one perspective and building on another. And I love the way she says, she says twice, it was clearly something, uh-huh. you know. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. by this point, for me at least, you know, the meaning is, is not entirely clear at all but for her it was really clear and in her dream and then you get this extraordinary ending it's almost like the envoy to the envoy you know the Mm -hmm. blue between the sky and the shark parlor i mean lovely as the loveliest of the sisters to leap into the waters and live free as the bride of the sea on the one level that is such a beautiful poetic blue image Mm -hmm. but of course Mm -hmm. it's it's the utter horror of right of what happened that's right and and you flip the notion of blue right round you've got the beauty and the horror there right at the end and that's i don't know i mean was that a surprise to you that you ended up there or was that in your mind that that was where the poem was leading you know it's an interesting question because remember what i said about like the modifier of blackness being very interesting to me as a maker of art and so mm-hmm. 
I think I was naturally going to get to something about, you know, the sea is always going to lead me to the middle passage. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's been such a significant part of diaspora and mm-hmm. such a significant part of like how we got here. Whether that's what she's thinking is sort of the, the fun thing that play, the poem plays around because it's like, who is she? What does it mean for like, you know, a farmer's wife in anywhere, you know, yeah. to, to come to that conclusion, to look at Blue and fall asleep at night and suddenly meditate on these women who jumped into the water rather than be slaves? So any woman could think that. Does it make a difference if the woman who meditates on that is a black woman or a white woman or a woman in, in her 80s or a woman in her teens? You know, so those kinds of things I do leave up to the artist. But certainly, you know, that is my hand. You know, at the end of the poem, it would be me, obviously curious. And she's like, it's, you know, it's about slaves. It's kind of about this yeah. idea of who they are. But I still also am leaving that question for us to be like, well, who is, you know, who is it? seeing it, who's saying it, who has seen it this way. I, I don't know if I would answer that. I think I would let the writer, I mean, the reader fill that question in. Mm-hmm. Uh, let the reader decide who it is that thinks that. But yeah, where it comes from, I think, you know, it comes from my you know, subconscious, I guess. And certainly, uh, as I said, the the color blue just has all these different resonances in it. Yeah, That seemed like a good place to go. <laughs> You've got that very telling phrase just before the end, the artist was suffering a notion of color, which could be a description mm-hmm. of the whole poem and the issues right. it brings up so right. terence thank you so much that is an extraordinary journey you have taken us on um it's been I good think let's let's have another listen to the poem and meditate again and see where we get to with it thank you okay well great yeah this has been good i'm glad we could do this we could do this mark this is where i go why i come out to meet people like you otherwise i'm just going to be home writing poems but it's nice to come out and meet the readers and writers in the world so i'm glad this i'm glad this happened Do-It-Yourself Sestina What Would You Ask the Artist? by Terrence Hayes Dear painter, can you share how you made the blue we find in certain of your paintings? Sometimes I catch it throwing a goddish glow over everything in the eye of a storm covered in lightning. I fear without you, the color will not be seen again, except perhaps inside us, where the bones hold its mercurial shades in them. Matisse, sir, did your brushes have the blues in them? Where else might the remains be found? We sometimes find the color in denim when rain dampens it, Once or twice making love, when I closed my eyes, I found myself in a tabernacle of the hue you have left hanging on the walls around us. Hello, goat, master of the show. I have very little use for blueberries, blue jays, skies, sapphire, and the hymns in the garments of policemen. But the lines we see hand-painted on porcelain come close. I might use it on a mean boss or in cases of chaos or rapture. And if I fell into darkness, I would gaze upon it and thank you. Midfall, Icarus shows how a misstep expands behind you, how one can come to a conclusion using the wrong calculus. The man who covered his coins and honey before eating them in gooseberries also turned a distasteful blue. The ennui we wish to cover and uncover, free and contain, as in how hard it is to describe your own accent as in the way the bluest eye has so much blackness in it. If people born in a season of ice 
are usually crawling by summer, how much do you suppose that determines their general disposition? Above us are constellations of soul needs for guidance, the anthems of sawdust and approximation, as if in matters of our bodies we are our least reliable witnesses. You find upon exit the tubes of desuetude painters use in the exhibit. I was born for this moment because this is the moment I was born, you say. It is always the color of history. Can you share how you made the blues outlast and outline us? How long did you swim or drown or float or swallow them, esteemed ghost? Henri, if I may. Henri, Henri, Henri. Envoy of Picasso's Blue. The first drawing Pablo Picasso made as a toddler with a single blue crayon on onion skin made his father, an average painter, weep and weep again, showing the drawing to Picasso's mother, who also wept. The drawing was said to have been lost after the death of Picasso's sister, Conchita of diphtheria, when the family moved to Barcelona, but it reappeared years later somewhere you'd never expect. To truly grasp any of Picasso's later work, you should know whether the sister's death conjured a bird's or bull's eye view of loss and faith, and if the experience instilled a constant, mysterious feeling in him. Whether everything that happens to the artist before age 9 or 10, or even before 9 or 10 a.m., influences whether an instrument is held like a tool or weapon. Loss, like desire, is always in the eye of the maker and beholder. Picasso, of course, grew to make many more haunted, perceptive scenes. But the stranger who found the drawing had no idea who'd made it, only that the lines in blue crayon on onion paper conjured a mysterious feeling in him. It looked somehow like a perfectly drawn landscape, said the neighbor, resting his wiry hand on the garden fence, thinking the stranger showing him a drawing in the middle of the day, slightly stranger than he thought before. Returning to his dirt, when the stranger left, the neighbor felt something come over his eyes, a quixotic quaking in all his blind spots. He spent the rest of his days trying to describe. It was a depiction of the body's geometries, the eye doctor replied, when the stranger asked his opinion. He sent the stranger home after an inconclusive eye exam and then went home to bed himself. The doctor closed his eyes around his tears and slept for six or seven days, dreaming of nudes posing before a surgeon with the palette knife. When the stranger got home and showed the drawing to his wife, she said it was clearly a portrayal of liberty. The artist marking the presence of God, she explained, pausing over the thickest of the lines and asking why and which heartbreaks can conjure the opposite of faith and time. Her hair, the stranger noticed, was no longer as it was when she was his bride. Blind spots always leave a stain, the wife said after dinner, though the stranger had long put the drawing away. She kept trying to describe what she'd seen, how not to disappear completely, she said, lying in bed, while her husband, the stranger, saw the drawing burning in a nightmare. It was clearly a tale about slaves. The artist was suffering a notion of color, the wife cried herself to sleep that night and dreamed she was being covered in waves of salt water and gold, the ephemera of souls lost between African and American shores, a blue between the sky and shark parlor, lovely as the loveliest of the sisters to leap into the waters and live free as the bride of the sea.
DIY Sestina, What Would You Ask the Artist by Terence Hayes is from his collection So to Speak, which was concurrently released by Penguin in 2023 with Watch Your Language, a collection of visual and lyric essays. Terence Hayes' honours include the National Book Award for Poetry, the Poetry Foundation Pegasus Award for Poetry Criticism, and fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the MacArthur Foundation. He is a distinguished silver professor at New York University. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. A new episode is released every month. If you enjoy the show and you would like to help me connect more poets with listeners and readers, you can contribute to the show's production costs at amouthfulofair.fm slash support. You can also support our poets and publishers as well as the podcast by buying their books in the A Mouthful of Air bookshop at amouthfulofair.fm slash bookshop. And if you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with music by Javier Whaler, sound production by Breaking Waves, and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.